All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8. So again, our plan, and I'm looking forward to it, is to go to Proverbs starting in the month of September for our Sunday morning studies in God's Word. But uh, for the month of August, we're going to continue on in our uh, deep dive into Luke's gospel. Uh, And so we have come to Luke chapter 8. Uh, this week, verses 26 through 39. So you can, we'll read that soon. You can turn there now. Well, there, there's nothing like an evenly matched contest, right? Uh, that's one of the reason me and probably most of you, uh, if you're sports fans, you just love a game seven. Uh, it means the series has been hotly contested. The teams are pretty much equally talented Now it's come down to the last game. It's time to pick a winner, but really both teams have won, you know? The loser doesn't think that. Uh, The best Super Bowls, or the the Super Bowls that are most boring, are the blowouts, right? I I remember one like eight years ago that was like 55 to 12 or something when I think it was Denver beating Seattle or the other way around. We want to see something more like Super Bowl V, which I wasn't alive for, but some of you were. 1971, Cowboys came in with a one-point favorite over Baltimore Colts, but lost in a 16-13 defeat, which was really a victory for the whole world, right? That the Cowboys lost. But it was a tight contest. Uh, We love the suspense of a neck-and-neck competition. But I, I think all of us at some point... Uh, fall into the thinking that this neck-and-neck kind of competition is really how good and evil operate in this world as well. So there's God on the one hand, and then there's the devil on the other. They're on equal footing, and it all depends on who is the best sales pitch for the day. Ultimately, we are on the throne of the universe, and God and Satan are battling it out to win us to their side. Is that really how it is? Does God's word teach that, you know, God has slightly better odds in Vegas, but it's really a toss-up. We'll see who comes with a better game. Church, God and Satan are indeed locked in a bitter battle. But the sides are not equally strong forces. Today, we're going to see, Lord willing, how Jesus has powerful authority over demons. And there's never really a question as to who will come out on top. So please turn in your Bibles, as I already asked, to Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Luke is writing. He says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from whom the city, from the city, who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. And he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? 
And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, that is Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Thus is the reading of God's word. May he write its truths deeply on our hearts. And as we look at this text this morning, let's, let's go with two points today. Just trying to throw it off. I think it's been probably like three months straight of three-point sermons. You got two points today. Uh, the first is two powers. And the second point is two reactions. Two powers and two reactions. So look with me at verse 26. Luke tells us Jesus and his disciples have sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is a Gentile region on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus has been doing his ministry. And this account we see in our passage this morning most likely comes after the story we just saw last week. You might think, think, duh, but sometimes the gospel writers have, I don't know, literary bents where they want to thematically uh, take Jesus's stories. They might not be perfectly chronological, but they want to put them together to make a point. This is one of those times where we see a thematic theme throughout, and that's a redundant phrase, a thematic theme throughout uh, this little section of Luke uh, that shows Jesus' authority, right? But I think these two actually come sequentially in time, right, one after the other. Jesus has just calmed the storm. He's rescued his disciples, and now on dry land, Jesus doesn't really get a break, Again, he comes face to face with an opposing force, this time not natural, but supernatural. Look at verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. So in scripture, we see that demons are very real and very powerful. Uh, They are servants of Satan with the ability to both exercise influence and attack on people. This has been evident throughout Luke's gospel. We have seen more than a couple of times Jesus confronting evil spirits, unclean spirits, demons. Yet here in Luke 8, in the passage I just read for us, we see one of the most thorough descriptions of what demonic activity looks like in all the gospels. So Luke tells us in verse 27 that, This man for a long time had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This is a dehumanized individual, living like a a wild animal in a dark place of death. 
This is what the devil's oppression looks like. It's not just internal. For this man, it's expressing itself externally for us all to see. Look at verse 29. There Luke provides a little bit more backstory on this guy. He says, For many a time the demon had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So it seems like from time to time, this demonic oppression would kind of up the ante. And at that point, the people from the city would come and try to tie him up and restrain him. But it was of no use. Friends, this is a horrific image. This is real spiritual warfare. And and it's just as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. I, I wonder how you come to a passage like this this morning. So I thought about this this past week as I studied, and I think I've narrowed it down to at least five basic approaches we can have when we come to the Bible's teaching on spiritual warfare, on demons, and on Satan. If you come up with another approach, you're like, this doesn't describe me at all, then come and tell me afterwards. I'd love to update my manuscript. So the the first approach is the cynic. So in your mind, uh, we've evolved past myths of ancient religion. Surely the the concept of demons is still believed on in our day, but not really. Not really in first world scientifically advanced cultures. We're past this. The second might be the disinterested person. So you're not skeptical or combative like the cynic, but you just don't see any importance in a story like this whatsoever. I mean, what concerns you is right what's in front of you. Spiritual world, spirits, all that kind of stuff. That just, that just, not only is it not nonsense, it's just not important at all. It has no bearing on your life. It might be fine for the religious folk around you, but you're going to stick with the material world, stuff you can see, stuff you can touch. The third is the fascinated person. You watch The Exorcist. You're the kind of person who watches, and you can, you can watch The Exorcist and watch be these other categories, but you, you watch scary movies, you get thrilled by them, there's this, this delicious fear, right? Your favorite holiday is Halloween, you're always captivated by the supernatural, it entertains you. There could be overlap here, so don't at me. Uh, the fourth is the fearful person, and this is where I would put myself for most of my life. And maybe you would too, especially if you grew up in the church. And this is the person that the idea of supernatural evil just frightens you to no end. You think at any moment, if you do anything wrong or, or, or open yourself up in any unhealthy way, you're going to end up like this guy. And you hear encouragements, you hear assurances, you hear sermons. It doesn't really help. This terrifies you. And fifth and finally is the faith-filled person. And if, it, if that's you, you see the power of demons, you see the, the right terror of it, but you see the power of Jesus as well. And in that confidence, and not in you, not in what you say or don't say, but in your Savior alone, you will find protection and peace from demonic forces. Of course, the point of this passage, and hopefully the point of this sermon, will be to, to convince you and persuade you to be that fifth person. But I understand the other four types. And so I ask you, wherever you find yourself, to 
humbly approach this description of the power of Jesus up against the power of demons and see for yourself what's true. If you're a cynic, I hope this shakes you up. If you're disinterested, I hope this compels you to see Jesus for who he is. If you're fascinated, I hope this exhorts you to be a bit more sober, sober-minded, careful. And if you're fearful, I hope this text assures you of the reality that Jesus is sovereignly powerful over demons. See, even for those of us who are Christians, even if we firmly believe in a world of angels and demons, which the Bible firmly does teach, even for those of us of those of the scholarly type that try to explain it away, we can still go weeks without thinking about spiritual warfare in our kind of easygoing, materialistic Loudoun County life. And maybe, maybe that's the reason we don't see much of this sort of Luke 8 description in our daily lives. Because maybe the strategy of Satan's demons in our society is to mute all things spiritual and and dim our minds to the reality of it all. That's what C.S. Lewis suggests in his famous screw tape letters, right? This kind of collection of letters from a senior devil named screw tape to his younger nephew devil named Wormwood. A famous excerpt of one of screw tape's letters goes like this. He's writing to Wormwood. He says, I don't think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient, that's the person he's tempting, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to rise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of someone in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, He therefore cannot believe in you. Christians, Satan is savvy. And his demonic activity will be just as powerful in our culture as it is in some other culture. But it might look very different. Do not be deceived. So what happens with this wretched man in the tombs outside the city in the land of the Gerasenes. Look at verse 28. So he sees Jesus, and at some point we know Jesus has commanded the demon to come out of him. We see that in verse 29. But in verse 28, the demon cries out and falls down before Jesus and screams, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Isn't it fascinating? that the disciples and their question in verse 25 last week is answered by a demon? Remember last week, the disciples asked that important question, who then is this? And here's the answer. He's the son of the most high God. Demons have good theology. They know who Jesus is and they hate everything about him. This demon is terrified of Jesus, yet all he can do is beg. You see that? Jesus holds all authority in this confrontation. Uh, The encounter continues in verse 30, uh, and Jesus asks the demon a question. So the demon has just identified Jesus. Jesus is like, this is a two-way conversation, man. I want to hear who you are, even though he most certainly does. He asks, what is your name? And the demon responds, 
legion. A a legion was a large regiment of Roman soldiers, over 5,000 strong. Now, whether there are 5,000 demons in this man, we can't be sure. Uh, Maybe just the idea of legion just means just a plethora of them. But Luke tells us the man's name is legion because there are many demons in him. This is the first time we've seen We've seen Jesus up against demons before. This is the first time in Luke we see Jesus up against a whole horde of them. I think that's part of the reason that we see so specifically that his name is Legion. As one author puts it, Jesus is outnumbered. Yet church, as we'll see, Jesus may be outnumbered, but he's not outmatched. That fact is apparent all over this passage. There's really no fight here. There's a confrontation there's no fight. There's the master and there's the mastered. Still, the demons have a request in this non-competition. And Jesus hears it. Verse 31. They beg Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. So we don't know much or we don't know everything about what they mean by abyss here. It, it seems to definitely be a realm of a confinement for evil spirits. And perhaps it's the same thing as the pit in Revelation 20, verse 1, uh, that can be locked or unlocked. And the demons rightly recoil then at the thought of being sent there. So, so they're asking pretty much anywhere but there. And they see all these pigs snorting in a meadow nearby. And they say, can we go into them as well uh, instead? And I love the end of verse 32. Look there. You can imagine the demons waiting with bated breath. No, anywhere but there, anywhere but there. And Luke writes, and he gave them permission. Church, Jesus has sovereign authority over demons, over evil. His word alone is sufficient to command them. See, others we've seen, others have tried to wrangle this guy. Jesus speaks, no shackles, No chains, he speaks, and it's done. Even evil can do nothing without the king's permission. This is one of the reasons I think that it's an untenable position for a Christian to try to explain away evil as being outside God's control in order to preserve God's goodness. Friend, Jesus here is definitely not the author of evil, but he is the authority over evil. That is undoubtable. So, Christian, listen. There is, there is a war going on for your soul. But your king, if you belong to King Jesus, your king's not going to lose. He holds the keys of death and hell, we see in Revelation chapter 1. Of course your fight with Satan and his henchmen is real. You should not kick back and relax because your king has won. In your fight against sin, in your fight against temptation... Grit it out with with clenched teeth. But do it knowing that the strength is the Lord's. If you think about it, knowing your king has won the victory should galvanize you all the more to fight. To fight hard. Because ultimately, you fight in his strength. You fight in his victory. That's what Megan read for us earlier in Ephesians 6. Paul says, be strong. And that can feel really burdensome to us. But then realize what he says later. Be strong in the Lord. 
in the strength of his might. He doesn't say, make your armor and put it on. He says, be strong in the armor, who? The armor of God. It's not your armor. It's the armor of God he gives to you. Christian, your King Jesus has all power. That means he can face the future. That means he can battle sin and win. That means you need not fear evil forces. So there in verse 33, the demons obey Jesus. They enter the pigs. The pigs rush down into the sea. They drown. And so the two powers we see here in our first point are shown to be real and strong and unevenly matched. Those are the two powers. So then finally, what are the two reactions to this exorcism? Look at verse 34. (laughs) It's kind of almost funny. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, it'd be like being a car salesman and just seeing all your 2,000 cars just go up in flames, right? When they saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. So you can imagine this whole scene has been incredibly alarming. Uh, The madman of the tombs has been defeated by a greater power and now 2,000 pigs. That's the number Mark's gospel gives us. Not here in Luke, but in Mark. 2,000 pigs have perished in the Sea of Galilee. What just happened? A a lot of people look at this and they kind of want to cast shade on Jesus. I mean, how fair is it of Jesus to kind of get rid of these people's livelihood? There's nothing in this text that says Jesus caused the pigs to run into the lake. Just putting that out there. But what just happened? Uh, these herdsmen are scared. They're also concerned by the loss of these pigs. So they run and they're telling everyone the news. You, you can't believe what just happened. And so in order to see it with their own eyes, the, the people begin to arrive by the seaside in verse 35. And upon arrival, they see Jesus with, at his feet, the man who had never been able to be subdued. In just a few verses, we'll see someone else at Jesus' feet. Can you think who that would be? Sitting at his feet? Mary, Martha's sister. I think there's something of the same idea here. This man is not only subdued, but he's hearing Jesus' teaching. He's listening. He's desiring, as we'll see, to follow after this one who has liberated him. He's sitting there, clothed in his right mind. Satan's oppression had dehumanized him. Jesus' salvation has made him more human than he's ever been before. So the people take it all in. And how do they react? Wow, can you do this with other demoniacs? Please come, come in. Luke says they are afraid. Presumably they're afraid of Jesus' power. I I think they're probably also afraid of just his threat to the the kind of status quo of their their countryside, though I don't know what kind of status quo that was with a raging demoniac in the tombs. Uh, they, They see the empty fields where before thousands of pigs had munched on grass, and so maybe that's making them a little upset. More is shared there in verse 36, and then in verse 37, all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes ask Jesus to depart from them. Jesus is rejected. He's rejected in his hometown by the Jews. 
Now he's rejected again by the Gentiles. Luke says again, they are seized by a great fear. And we can surmise this is no godly fear. It is a faithless fear. Leon Morris, the late commentator, says the people here reject the greatest opportunity of their lives. So that's the first reaction. But then verse 38. So at seeing this new master leaving, the newly restored man begs that he might be with him. Your heart kind of really goes out to him at this point. See, the people beg Jesus to depart. All this healed man wants is to stay with Jesus forever. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way about your rescue from bondage to sin and Satan? Jesus has done it all for you at his own expense. Now all you want to do is be with him. Perhaps that's the way you respond to Jesus this morning. Or perhaps you respond this morning more like the people from the surrounding country. So Jesus, powerful as he is, poses a threat to you. Trusting in Jesus means you'll need to submit to his authority. Trusting in Jesus means you'll need to leave your security in your pigs, in your possessions, in your pleasure and sin. You're going to need to cede all control over to him. There are kind of two ends of the spectrum in reactions to Jesus this morning. Where are you? See, Jesus came to liberate the world from sin and bondage. So each one of us thinks we are the masters of our own lives. That's how we start off. But when we're honest, thinking that we can just kind of jettison God's power and live on our own is the worst bondage of all. We find ourselves in bondage to everything except what we want. Find our bond, ourselves in bondage to fear, to lust, to our goals. And the more and more we, we live, the more and more we feel like we have no control whatsoever. We are not free. We're much like this man running around the tombs of the garrisons. Our sin dehumanizes us and we have become self-worshippers, twisted remnants of what we were made to be, rejecting our creator, King. But enter Jesus. Jesus comes with power to save, to liberate us from bondage. And how does he do that? By taking our bondage on himself. By taking our sin and breaking our bonds at the cross. So how, how did Jesus stand up against the rulers of darkness and the spiritual powers of evil? He died at the cross. In his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. In his death, Jesus decimated demons. In his death, death died, as we'll see more next week, Lord willing. Satan was conquered by the death of Christ. As Jesus bore the guilt of any who would turn to him and exhausted God's judgment. In his death, Jesus defeated Satan's last scheme, the scheme to kill the very Son of God. Surely, surely that would derail God's redemption plan. 
But in his death, in his very death, Jesus did that. He accomplished God's plan. He saved sinners and he rose again three days later to put the last nail in Satan's coffin. Jesus has powerful authority over demons, over the devil, over death itself. Friend, if you're not here, if you're here, you're all here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, welcome. We are glad you're here. We hope you feel warmly welcomed by us. But we want you to know that the Bible says you're a child of Satan. And you will be judged for your sin. There's still time. There's still time to change your allegiance. Jesus has died for your sin if you will repent and trust in him. Won't you come and own him as your faithful king before you own him as your severe judge? And brothers and sisters, dear church family, in verse 38, we get a tailor-made application for us from this passage. So the man from whom the demons has gone has, is begging that uh, Jesus that he might be with Jesus. And then Luke writes, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Christian, what what has Jesus done for you? If you're in Christ, he has chosen you. He has redeemed you. He has loved you, regenerated you, delivered you, rescued you, freed you, saved you, justified you, adopted you, sanctified you, will glorify you, and until that day has promised to keep you. That's what he's done. Have you gone back to your family and your friends and told them all of that? Church, arise. Reach out to those in darkness. Tell the triumphs of his grace to those who are lost. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can just kind of breathe a deep sigh of relief again this morning. That the powerful, the most powerful um, powers of this world have been vanquished by you and there was never really any question. Thank you that you are sovereign and that we need not fear when you are with us and you are with us all the time. We are indwelled by a spirit, but it's your spirit. So help us to stand firm in your power against the evil one, picking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, make us those who proclaim throughout Percival, Round Hill, Hamilton, Bluemont, Lovettsville, Brunswick, Charlestown, Leesburg, and beyond what you have done for us. In the name of the powerful Savior with authority over demons, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. What better song to sing than O Church Arise? Arise and sing.